Today's sponsor is Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash decode. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, senior tech editor at The Verge. And this is Too Embarrassed to Ask, our podcast about consumer tech. Not just gadgets, but also apps, services, and really anything that has to do with you, the consumer, and all of your personal tech questions. So send us your questions. We really do read them all. First, you can tweet them to at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. That's two R's and two S's in embarrassed. We also have an email address that's too embarrassed at recode.net. Again, two R's and two I would make a joke, but I'm in a bad mood today after this election. Yeah, I know. I don't want to make a joke about emails right now. No, not right Mm -hmm. now. We also have a great back catalog of podcasts, too, which you can find on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. Yes, and if you go back and listen to them, you might notice there's something in our voices that sounds like like hope. I don't know. That might be, (laughs) might not be in today's podcast. I don't know. Maybe No, we are half joking. um, Not um, not joking at all. It is the day, the day that we are taping this. So you were listening to this on Friday night. November 11th or thereafter and the day that we are taping this is Wednesday November 9th and is the day after the presidential election Um, so we are processing and recovering Mm -hmm. and reacting and um we're going to talk about some we are going to talk about some of this yes thank you for coming to my house to uh, tape this yeah, of course. I couldn't leave the house today. No, I, uh, I'm such a loser. I have to tell you, it was tough to mm-hmm. get away from the desk, and I was very uh, distracted, and um, I got a speeding ticket on the way here. I know, um, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Just bad and worse. Uh, it's right? as I was exiting the highway, and I was yeah. still going fairly fast along the exit ramp. Oh, um, there's probably some metaphor there. I don't I even don't know. know. But, Slow but down yeah, more. it's just, um, but no, I'm happy to be here. And we also have Ina Freed here. She's Recode's senior editor. Uh, who, tell us where you were last night during the election. Uh, so I was at Hillary's evidently unsuccessful get out the vote effort during the day. And then I went to um, political tech company Brigade, had a big election party. I went there for a little bit, and then I went to the very moribund uh, San Francisco for Hillary event, uh, which was at a Holiday Inn, and I, I, that might have been the first telling sign. I don't think you throw a presidential victory party at a Holiday, Holiday Inn. Holiday Inn, yeah. Wow. And Recode reporter April, April Glazer was actually at a pro-Trump event oh last God, night. I don't know. And uh, so Rico did a great job of live blogging the events mm-hmm. throughout the evening. Kara, you and I were both at a bar oh. in Silicon Valley. Yep. Uh, where there were some, you know, prominent Silicon Valley technologists and executives. Um, and the mood just, you could really feel it change right. quite, dramatically quite dramatically in a short period Except of time. Except for the Trump dudes that wouldn't shut the hell up. the evening. <laughs> well, <laughs> Did you see them? <laughs> maybe a recurring theme for the next four years. Literally. Yeah, a bunch um, of meatheads down in Silicon Valley enjoying themselves. Well, today on Too Embarrassed to Ask, we are going to talk first about encryption. Like most of our other episodes, this one was inspired by a reader email about encrypted messaging apps. So we're going to tackle that topic first and hopefully get you some answers. Yeah. And since uh, this is really what is the top of mind with everyone right now, we're going to talk about the election and encryption will be part of this, which is interesting. And why Donald Trump is the first Twitter president, how Facebook's algorithms were a fail during this election season, and whether there's any merit to the suggestions that Americans should now be using anonymous browsers. Yes. So in addition to Ina Freed from Recode, I'm being very rude here. Um, I have not yet introduced Russell Brandom from The Verge. Russell has joined us previously on episodes of Too Embarrassed to Ask to talk about encryption and privacy and security issues. And we're very happy to have Russell joining us from New York. Russell, thanks for coming on today. 
Yeah, glad to be here. So our reader email that we got earlier was from Jessica Swarner. She wrote to us and said, Hi, Lauren and Kara. I keep hearing about encrypted messengers like WhatsApp and how great they are for safety. I'm really curious as to what exactly this means and how much safer it is than other messengers. And if it is more secure and less likely to be hacked, is WhatsApp the most secure or are there better platforms? She said, thanks so much. Love the show. Just thank you for listening and also for sending in your question. Uh, so Russell, I'm going to toss it to you first. What exactly does it mean when an app offers encrypted messaging? So this is an interesting question in part because most things are encrypted in some way. So there are some apps that, I mean, there are, if, if you're just texting someone regularly, that's not really encrypted. Someone, you know, the phone company can see, can, can see sort of what the, the actual content of your text is. But generally, if it's a Hangout, if it's Gmail, if it's, you know, w- whatever program you're using, it's probably encrypted. If you're just Twitter direct messaging, it's it's encrypted so that people like in the tubes, like your service provider and stuff, they can't, all they see is sort of numbers. And then it gets turned back into a direct message on the other end. But so when, when people talk about encrypted messaging, they're really talking about a sort of more specific kind of encryption, which is focused on privacy and sort of leaving the data as sort of protected as possible at every stage of the process. So in the case of WhatsApp, the app on your phone, if, if I write, you know, hey, Lauren, what's up mm-hmm. on WhatsApp and I send yeah. you that That's message. some really damning stuff, Russell. I don't know. I might know. want to be careful well, you, about that. You know, privacy starts with the small things. Yeah, it does. The only place that text can be seen is like literally the text of hi, Lauren, what's up? It exists on my phone, obviously, because I typed it in and then I send it and it shows up on your phone and... Those are the only two places that it's sort of in the open, right? This is different from, for instance, Gmail, where if I send you that in a Gmail, Gmail is decrypting it and using it to target ads to me so that they know I'm a hip millennial and, and send me sort of whatever the relevant ad content is. And then they encrypt it again to send it to you. But there's sort of this place in the middle where it's not encrypted and people worry that, you know, okay, well, they, could they be compelled to sort of go through all of Russell's emails legally, and and they could. Like, sometimes this happens if there's a valid legal process and they say, we know you have this person's email. So the point is it it lives on Google's servers, and, you know, this is a problem today. This is an issue for all kinds of communication. I think, you know, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, but the election heightens the fears. You know, what does it mean for the government to be able to get at this? And, And let's not forget, you know, the Obama administration and the Bush administration before that have been very active in trying to get electronic messages yeah. when they think it might be useful. Yeah, and to, let's not pretend that the Obama administration has been anything but tough on this. I mean, they obviously got into a war with Apple. You know, all these government agencies, yeah. they tend to overreach, as always, and they tend to want more and more more control over these things. And even though in the Obama administration there was dissent, like Ash Carter was much more pro-encryption, was in fact very pro-encryption, there was a lot of, you know, I had a back and forth with President Obama about the issue. And he had, you know, he maintained that there were all sorts of threats that I didn't understand. And 
uh, or people didn't understand, and, and he had changed his stance, which he denied he did, but he did on the topic. So I think you know you're just gonna, you're not going to have any debate going on maybe in this administration. Or maybe I think we, you will. I think we're going to get into the politics of it in a little bit. But first, I want to make sure we answer our reader question sure. about what encryption actually means and what apps offer it. So why would uh, Jess, who wrote the question in, ask specifically about something like WhatsApp? What is WhatsApp claiming to do or offer that maybe other messaging apps aren't? Or is that you yeah. know? Well, the crucial thing is that storage. So so one of the sort of terms is end-to-end encryption, which is what I was sort of describing with the phones, where it's only the two ends where the messaging is visible. And this is kind of, you know, this also means if my phone gets hacked, they can still see everything because they got to one of the ends. But, you know, it's sort of the best you can do. Like if you're making a chat program and you want to make the messages as secure as possible, you know, the, the endpoints are always vulnerable, as they say. So, so end-to-end encryption is important. And I think one of the other things that, is really arguably more important is how much data you're collecting and retaining and sort of how much information you have on the users at any given point. So, I mean, WhatsApp, for instance, doesn't keep logs of the encrypted messaging, right? So so maybe they have, you know, if, even if they don't have the key to decrypt it, they say, well, okay, you know, we're just going to keep the numbers. And if we ever need to decrypt it, we'll, you know, ask for your key or, or what have you, right? But they don't do that. There are also sort of ongoing questions of how long should the message stay on your phone? And then also the metadata of, okay, even if they can't see exactly what I sent to you, if they can still see, well, Russell sent Lauren a message, then that could be very important information. And this is part of what people are concerned now with WhatsApp, specifically as they're merging with Facebook, that information is now going to be used to target ads. And there's a big, they're having all sorts of trouble with uh, European privacy regulators over it. And even earlier, we there was an intercept piece about uh, how long iMessage stores that metadata. Well, how does that is, compare? How do the two compare? So iMessage stores it for only 30 days, which was a surprise because it used to be seven days. Apple actually says that this is because people would go on vacation for seven days and they would just sort of not have their phone connected to any internet. And then the iMessage would just sort of have vanished because I sent the iMessage and I vanished into the subway and it's just in Apple's system waiting to be delivered. And so they opted to 30, but then people were sort of concerned about, you know, whether this was too long. But so the the real thing about them comparing is iMessage is only end-to-end encrypted if you're sending it to another iPhone. This is like the blue bubble as opposed to the green bubble. Mm-hmm. And this is a very Apple thing because they sort of, they're like, well, you know, if you want a good experience, you should only sort of associate with other Apple users. It's a very kind of, well, yes, of course, this is the best way. And so it is It is very good. Apple actually has a cool thing, again, because they make their own hardware, and specifically they make the chips in the iPhone. They have this cool thing where they, the private key is hard-coded onto the chip, so it's even harder to break because you can't, you have to physically sort of get to someone's iPhone, and even then you can't really get the private key, which is... I mean, the circumstance in which this would be useful is pretty abstract, but it is cool. And I think folks who worry about cryptography things for a living are, are definitely very impressed by it. Mm-hmm. So, but, I mean, the main Ina's, question uh, Ina's jumping is, at the bit here to weigh so, so, I mean, the important thing to keep in mind is iMessage, when we talk about its encryption, that refers to iMessage to iMessage encryption. Whereas, uh, as Russell mentioned, with the green button, what it's actually doing is sending a text message, and that's going lots of places. So that's going uh, yeah. from your carrier to the carrier of the person you're sending it to. 
Um, and so that you shouldn't think of it as any more secure than a text message, which is widely available. Um, and, exactly. You know, um, yeah, I mean, I think another thing that people worry about with these applications is how easy is it for me to screw up and send an unencrypted message, right? So I'm, you know, sending Kara the the secret documents, and how much pay attention do I have to pay to make sure that this is actually encrypted? Um, and so with iMessage, it's you know, if, if you just don't know offhand whether this person's an iPhone user or an Android user because you forgot, you kind of have no idea whether the message you're sending is going to be encrypted or not encrypted. And then this is also a concern with Telegram because there's a lot of this sort of encrypted version of the message and the non-encrypted chat are kind of right next to each other and it's easy to get the two confused. What about messaging apps that either disappear like Snapchat or um, messaging apps like Wicker that offers, you know, claim to offer a certain level of protection through disappearing messages. Or is Wicker yeah, I was going to bring up is, right? Wicker. We had them speak at Code Mobile. And so what Wicker does is they take it a step further. It's end-to-end encrypted, like as Russell was mentioning with WhatsApp, but they also don't know the identity of the people who have a user account. So that metadata that Russell was talking about, most messaging things, they can tell you, Russell sent Lauren a message at this time, which is a lot of data. And they can even can tell you in a lot of cases, Russell sent Lauren a message from this place at this time. Um, location data is also really important here. So what Wicker does is uh, your identity is actually encrypted. Wicker doesn't know the names, the identities of its own users. And so they have even less data. And a lot of people feel that the best defense against these sort of government requests is to have as little data yeah. as possible. So Wicker is one of those options. You're seeing journalists use it. There's a few others out there that like Telegram. signal. Yeah. Telegram is one that I've used many times. You know, you definitely think about it all the time now. I do. I have. I, it was interesting because last night I was typing and you put a picture of me up and I have a cover over my camera. I just do. I just mm-hmm. feel like it, she needs to be there. I got it from Mr. Robot of all things. They sent it to me, which was somewhat funny. Um, but I think about that a lot. And then I'm thinking about audio on my computer? How do I turn that off? Or how do I jam that? And so I think about that almost continually. And it used to be when I was just traveling in Asia, or China, really, particularly, I was more worried about that. But I'm worried about it here, too. I have to say, I recently, this was after I watched an episode of Black Mirror, I will admit, (laughs) but I recently disabled the um, sort of in-home security camera that I was using to watch our pet during the day. Mm -hmm. Because I just thought, well, I mean, yeah, maybe I'll use it when I'm traveling for an extended period of time or certain, watch. but I don't want it on every day anymore. Yeah. It's just the value Your Samsung add. smart TV, these devices that are always listening, all these great little home things that are always listening, that audio stream, you know, today there's a little bit of protection because for battery reasons, they're generally not storing things until you say their keyword, but... There's an audio, there's a mic, and it's connected. Yeah, so Russell, what do you think about the plethora of these things in homes? I mean, you've got thermostats, you've got Amazon Echo. I unplug it a lot, actually, more than when I'm not using it. And Lauren, Uh, you've been using uh, this new messaging service, IRL. Oh, yeah. um, You know, only the cool kids are using it. Don't worry about it. Okay, well, then I, I definitely wouldn't be using it. But it's interesting. I mean, you know, I found out from Lauren that the hip kids are using this thing, IRL, in real life. But what's interesting is that face-to-face communications, you know, I've always thought of as a journalist, are safer. And in some ways they are, uh, if we meet in person. Uh, but there's all these crazy technologies that let you record a conversation blocks away with a like super sensitive directional mic. So is this a case of, you know, we're not going to have any privacy, we should just get over it? I mean, I definitely, I don't think that. I think we probably want to be moving pretty fast towards 
communications methods that don't automatically store for an infinite period of time, which is the big email thing. And this is sort of what we saw in the election and, and also before that in the Sony leaks. I mean, if you send an email on this on any account, it creates this permanent record of the email you sent. And then you just have a larger and larger archive. And, you know, the easiest way to protect that from getting into someone's hands is to not have it at all. Why do I need a complete record of all my communications from three years ago? It's sort of alarming. Um, And so I think Wicker's a great step in that direction. The other one, I mean, the the one that the cool encryption kids really like is Signal, which they've done a lot of audits and are are kind of protected against a lot of obscure attacks and, and things are sort of complicated to get into, but everyone sort of says it's the top. So uh, that, that one, I mean, it's it's a little bit more scrappy because they're kind of working on this algorithm and more focused on the back end than the front end in some ways. But uh, it's what I've used and I've had great experiences with it. All right. Okay, we'll talk more about this issue and others. I'm even more inspired than ever to go back to using more secure messaging. Uh, you know, it's a choice between giant companies and the government, which is not a great choice for anybody. In a minute, we're going to talk more about the election results from last night. But first, a word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by SoFi. And today I'm talking to Claire Arthurs, Director of Community and Member Success at SoFi. SoFi is a new kind of finance company offering student loan refinancing, mortgages, personal loans, wealth management, and more. Today I'm asking Claire a question that some people may be too embarrassed to ask about student loans. So what does it mean to refinance your student loans? You consolidate them, right? You bring them all together. Yeah, so consolidating and refinancing are two different things that it's good to understand. So when you consolidate your loans, you're essentially putting them all in one place and taking a weighted average of the old interest rates and applying it to the new one loan. So it does make it easier to kind of have them all in one place. But the interest rate will not change in terms of sure. how much interest you're paying over high. the life of the loan. Right. They can be very high, right? When you refinance your loans, what you do is you reapply to you know a private lender like SoFi, mm-hmm. and then we reevaluate your financial picture as it stands now, as opposed to when you were 18 right. and took out the loans or you know when you so started you can get graduate rates school. And, things like that. and so you can get a better rate, exactly. See how a SoFi loan can work for you at SOFI.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Too Embarrassed to Ask is brought to you by the English edition of Pravda. You can find that where you used to find media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> so after that enlightening conversation about encryption and encrypted apps, and uh, I guess maybe what we should all consider using or at least trying in order to keep our information more secure, let's talk about the election. Yes. How are you guys feeling after last night? Bad. Look, I've been a very obvious Hillary supporter and sort of on Twitter and other places. It has many in Silicon Valley. I'm not unusual uh, for that. Um, But I think one of the topics we should talk about is sort of what it means for Silicon Valley and what it means for tech. Because I think, as I wrote last night, this is a real, uh, a lot of people said it's a real wake-up call for Silicon Valley because a lot of, now, even though it was a half-and-half election, so let's not go too far. It wasn't a a stirring mandate to stop the progress at all. It's sort of a everybody's confused um, and half the people want to move forward, half the people don't seem to, or are very upset about what the changes that have been wrought through our economy. But um, it's definitely, you know, Silicon Valley just marches forward without thinking of the repercussions, which is about the only thing I agree with Peter Thiel on, who is still remains a appalling hobgoblin of <laughs> Silicon Thiel Valley. Peter the well-known venture yeah. capitalist who support, but, openly supported Donald Trump. Yeah, but I think he was right in that they don't understand the implication. neither does he, by the way, living in his 
rich man's bubble. But but I think that's something to really think about is what has technology wrought? And I think that's a really good question. And it's something we've talked about a lot. Like because it feels like we're all so much more informed, quote unquote, as a result of social media. I and mean, right. we had uh, Trump who was actively using Twitter to get his points across and has been for years. Uh, we're all on Facebook. We're all getting lots of news articles, you know, it's sort of appearing in our feeds, coming in sideways, as we like to say, uh, in publishing. And yet a lot of people missed this. Well, I think one of the things that has been written about, but I think people really didn't appreciate is how much of an echo chamber we have all created for ourselves. So yes, we get tons of information from our friends on Facebook. But you know what? A lot of our friends on Facebook are just like us. And I think it reinforced this notion um, that if we just talked a lot about the election, if we just talked about things, we've achieved change. And I, you know, I was talking about this at the TED Women Conference with a bunch of attendees. One woman who addressed this really well on stage was talking about one of the challenges of this powerful storytelling mechanism is we hear these compelling stories and we listen to them and we think that's changed something. Um, The fact of the matter is me listening to the founders of Black Lives Matter and being compelled by what they have to say hasn't changed anything. It hasn't changed police violence. It hasn't changed racial inequality. To counter that, though, do you, would you say that it made you a more informed and educated voter? Just feel and worse. Have, yes, but feel that, worse. that only some. is effective yeah. to the degree that I take action right. on it. Exactly. And I think what happened in this election is a lot of people shared a lot of well-worded, powerful sentiments. You know, I talked about, you know, having grandparents who survived the Holocaust, but if I didn't change any minds, right. if I just got a lot of my friends and people who feel similarly to nod and like yeah. it on Facebook, that didn't actually you change sort anything. sort of hashtagivism. I think that was the joke. It's been the joke about the idea that you do, you trade and you trade and you have a lot of information. And, you know, a lot of it is, uh, you know, there's some, you know, for example, there was fake news on Facebook. There's a lot of it's super confusing. And I think people talking to their own people, including the the Trump side, they were talking to each other and every now and then shooting off something towards the lit, what they call libtards there or whatever. There was crazy nonsense that yeah. was legitimized by both extreme media who that's their basic purpose, but also not challenged enough by the mainstream media. I mean, there was this thing, the one that stands out to me the most, it's fairly minor, but President Obama took a stand. There was a heckler at one of his rallies that he was speaking at. He took the side of the heckler and talked about how important it was to respect to him. Respect he said him. he looked like a veteran and we should respect he him. Respected, he looked like a veteran. He's an elder. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a right to speak. Trump said that Obama had shot down this heckler. Right. That's just objectively false. Right, but that was but that spread on Facebook. doesn't get out. Like, the idea Well, it got facts, out, nobody cares. I well, think that, nobody cares, but it got out to half. It got out to the half. I mean, we're a nation of halves. There's two halves in our country. There's very little middle. And information does not generally travel across the halves. The halves have their own media. They look very different on Facebook. Even if they're both using Facebook... Those feeds have almost nothing in common. And there's not much dialogue happening there. Once upon a time, and I'll get off my soapbox in one sec. Please, soapbox away. Once upon a time, we elected conservatives and liberals and Republicans and Democrats to Congress. But then we expected them to govern, to work things out amongst themselves. We actually don't do that anymore. We might expect it, but that's not how they see their role. And so... You know, half the country elects their half, half the country elects the other half. The balance tilts ever so slightly or more to one of the halves, and they run roughshod over the other 
for a period of time. Mm-hmm. There's not that you have this opinion, I have this opinion. How can we work things out? I have to say, I, I felt like I was kind of duped by the information in a way because in the days and to an extent weeks leading up to the election, I was doing some random sampling, uh, very unscientific, you know, random sampling of people in my social media feeds and noticing sort of the trends and the like the uh, sentiments that were being shared and the language that was being used. And I thought, oh, you know, some some people who were supporting Donald Trump were really stooping to new levels of indecency in terms of the things that they were saying about women. I mean, I saw people, um, you know, using a lot of expletives, calling Alicia Machado ugly. Some people, you know, saying... I think that was actually Donald Trump, but yes. Right. But no, but that then was people, our president-elect. But then people echoing that. I saw people making jokes about grabbing by, you know, their genitals. That I was saw, also Trump. I saw people making jokes about women's racks. I'm not kidding. I mean, I saw this a lot, you know, and I, pr- I specifically didn't unfriend or unfollow certain people because I thought, I don't want to be in this bubble. I don't want to be in a media echo chamber of people that I know on the West Coast who went, you know, also went to school and stuff like that. I wanted to keep it real. And and then I saw people expressing sentiments about, about Hillary Clinton. And even if people said, well, I don't really, she's not my top candidate. I don't really like her. Here are the four things I've really weighed and about who should be our president. I'm considering temperament. I'm considering experience. And, all that. and I thought, well, this just seems so much more reasonable. You know, everything just seems so reasonable. And, and um, we were wrong. We were all wrong. And, and, you know, now I think the big question is how do we move forward? But I think we should also talk a little bit about the Facebook effect and this this right. kind of spreading of mis- misinformation the, and fake news. Yeah, well, it's it, that's gonna ha- that's been happening on the but internet. But is the since onus on? And I want Russell. Russell, we're kind of uh, talking over here, and I apologize. I want to bring you back into this. Is the onus on the technology companies to develop these algorithms to do anything about this? I mean, or are we as the human beings who are just utilizing these platforms mostly responsible because we're sharing the information? Who do who do you think that falls on? What what happens from here? Well, I think. The cat's kind of out of the bag no matter what Facebook does, right? I mean, I think the the problem isn't Facebook as a company having a particular policy, at least in my opinion. I mean, I think a lot of people would tell you that it is and they need to embrace being a media company and and all of these things. But I mean, fundamentally, we also, I mean, I, I people would say, you, you know, Breitbart and Infowars and, and fringe publications, right, that you referred to have not been particularly more successful since the rise of Facebook than previously, right? I mean, Drudge Report is very much a pre-Facebook thing. I think it's the kind of thing that maybe Facebook, like I would suspect that he is doing less well in an environment that's shaped by Facebook, right? And now that we're all moving to mobile and everything, right? I mean, I think the, the minute that, you know, okay, so if Mark Zuckerberg, you know, woke up this morning and said, oh my God, you know, I was trying to take this hands-off approach to the media and I thought, you know, it'd be a laissez-faire marketplace of ideas. I was completely wrong. We need to be very aggressive about, you know, policing speech that we find to be hateful and policing information that we find to be incorrect. And starting today, I am going to crack down on all of these things. That wouldn't stop people from watching InfoWars. It wouldn't stop people from going to Breitbart. I mean, it would be hard for those publications, but I, the, the market would just sort of, ra- large as Facebook is, the yeah. market would just route around it. And yeah, the problem I, is sort I, of I, that- I totally agree. Sorry to yeah. jump in. I totally agree. No, no, totally. We can't just police, you know, the goal isn't that Facebook should censor. I mean, we can talk about Twitter and, and sort of where the lines are of- In terms of abuse. Harassment and right. abuse, because I think that's a different question. But I think the problem with Facebook's 
media isn't that they're showing you the wrong media or they're not policing it enough. I think we aren't educated enough as a society to recognize that's an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. There's going to be echo chambers. There's always been echo chambers. There's always been you tend to agree with the people around you. And so you you get in a bubble. Um, Facebook creates a, a big bubble for everyone. I think the important lesson there is recognizing that your Facebook friends newsfeed is not a reflection of what everyone in the country thinks. I think where the onus is, is more, you know, Twitter is an open dialogue. And on Twitter, we do see much more back and forth. Um, I think the question is, how do we have that vibrant debate in a way that also uh, doesn't allow for rampant harassment? Um, And they're the ones that I think do have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. Almost nothing counts as abuse or harassment on Twitter if you're not a celebrity. And speaking of Twitter and the use of Twitter, obviously Donald Trump has used it beautifully. I called him a savant, and he really has been. I think it's much of what he's written is appalling um, and beneath now, but definitely beneath him. But he definitely uses it in a terrific way. He's very genuine. Um, It's very him. And that's why it works. You know, that's why it works for Mark Cuban. It works for a lot of people. I think me too. Like it's it's definitely a medium where your personality, if you use it, comes to the forefront. And I think he's, he, I, I literally call him the first Twitter president who is effectively not just use it for marketing, but for messaging, uh, you know, really strong messaging about what he thinks. And what, what's interesting is he doesn't hold back. And um, it reminds me a tiny bit of Rupert Murdoch when he got on, where he sort of lost his mind many times, um, although he seemed a little crazier than even that. Um, and thankfully was Trump. Australian, yeah. so ineligible. Yeah, but I president. think, you know, it's interesting how he used it. And even though he said terrible things, the media just, including us, kept reporting on just what he said, not, you know, I think I wrote a piece saying, just recently, he's made us all jerks. Like we now have gotten into it the way he has. I'm I'm not embarrassed by everything I've said, but you know I really can get into it. I mean, he people. effectively used it as his campaign advertising. Yeah, because he didn't right. do traditional campaign advertising for a long time. You know, throughout the the campaign, and he wielded the power of social media in a way that I think Twitter in particular. You couldn't well, have done Twitter that on Facebook. You could not have done what he did on Facebook ever. You have been thrown off, which is really interesting. And what's fascinating is the people who founded Twitter have to be appalled by this. They are very liberal people. They're very like, this is not how they imagined, not just that they were liberal, this is not how they imagined the medium would be. I'm, you know, I spent time when they in the early days, this was meant to uplift society. And now it is downgrading it rather severely, I think. And that's part of the troll problem on Twitter, part of the fact that human beings can just be animals, really. And the other thing, and I love Twitter, I'm on it all the time. I find it a very effective medium to talk about a range of issues even despite the existence of a hostile environment, I kind of dive in every day. Um, I always joke, there's two things I get harassed a lot about, you know, one far more than the others. Uh, You know, being a transgender woman, I get some attack for that. But covering Apple, I get way more harassment and abuse for that. But, you know, I think the bigger issue with Twitter that we have to account for, and again, I think we have to recognize the pros of these tools and the limits is, we're talking about public policy. We're talking about the future of our country. And actually, very few problems can be solved in 140 characters. And I think some of our danger is mistaking tweets for policies, mistaking social media comments for positions on issues. And they're not. So before we wrap this up, I do want to talk more about what this means for the tech sector, since this is a tech podcast. What, what does this mean? What does a Trump presidency mean for some of the biggest tech companies out there? You know, you wrote a piece for Recode uh, early this morning. I can't imagine when you actually wrote it. You must have been up pretty late. 
about Apple and specifically Trump's, you know, sort of ongoing Twitter feud with Apple. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of issues uh, for a lot of tech companies and, and some of them face similar issues to Apple. I dove into a few different ones. The one that Apple is going to like best is they make a tremendous amount of money and Trump's talked about lowering corporate taxes. And importantly, he's also talked about um, allowing companies that keep a lot of their money offshore to bring it back here. And that's actually a result of the current tax policies where companies like Apple that generate a tremendous amount of cash have found it advantageous to earn, if you will, I I always call it to collect revenue, because I don't think they necessarily earn it in those other places, but to collect it in places like Ireland and not pay as much taxes. But the result of that is they can't actually bring the money back to the US without paying taxes. So one of the things Apple will probably get to do in a lot of other tech companies is bring that money back to the US. And certainly that could mean more investment in the US. But there's been a broader debate between Trump and Apple over a couple of issues. One we talked about earlier was encryption. Trump said and called for a boycott of Apple until they agreed to not use the encryption and hand over the information the government wants. We'll see how much of that is rhetoric. You know, I I think most people that call on for boycotts on Apple often do so from their iPhones. And uh, (laughs) it's not very effective if you're uh, boycotting Apple from your iPhone. (laughs) The idea that Apple is going to have to manufacture stuff in the US, I think Trump will soon learn, you know, isn't really practical. Apple does a very limited amount of manufacturing. They manufactured that Mac Pro in the U.S. because it was a, you know, small niche product with huge margins and they could afford to. The fact of the matter is you can't make a competitive phone today in the U.S. and compete against China, nor do we have the kind of labor force. Like, there's hundreds of thousands of people making iPhones. It would be great to have that many people making anything in the U.S., Uh, We don't actually have that kind of infrastructure, let alone cost structure. And then some of this is more broadly. uh, Trump has also gone after Amazon, so they're going to face some unique things. Uh, Bezos also owns the Washington Post, which uh, we know uh, Trump is a huge fan of. Um, (laughs) But a lot of these issues, you know, are broader. Uh, Certainly where Trump comes in on regulation and policy. uh, He talked about not being for the AT&T Time Warner merger. Those types of things, you know, consolidation in cell phone carriers, Sprint and T-Mobile have wanted to merge for a long time. They've been waiting for the next administration. So a lot of unanswered questions. Right. And we, of course, still have yet to see how Trump's policies on immigration could potentially impact the tech sector just in terms of bringing uh, foreign talent into the country. Russell, you covered the San Bernardino iPhone case pretty closely. Do we have any indication right now what Trump's sort of policies are on things like encryption and how that may come to light? And let's hope there are not future cases like the San Bernardino iPhone case, but how he might approach something like that? Well, so this is part of what makes him so confounding to cover is that it's very difficult to know he changes policies a lot and sort of it's very difficult to pin him down to a particular topic and know when he says this thing about libel laws or when he says this thing about boycotting Apple, is he going to stick with that or are you going to ask him about it two days later? And he says, no, I never said that. Having said that, I mean, I think there are a lot of cases. There's no short supply of iPhones that the FBI would like to get into. Right. I mean, you know, San Bernardino is very high profile, so they found it politically advantageous. And you never kind of know when they're going to go to bat. And they have been waiting for the end of this administration because, you know, even if Hillary Clinton won, she's a lot more friendly to the FBI's sort of 
desires on this than than Obama is. Mm-hmm. So that's going to keep coming up. And I, I don't even necessarily know that it's a Trump question. I think it's sort of an FBI question and it's kind of a question of how much power the government has over these companies. At some point, Donald Trump is going to want something from Apple or Google or Amazon and they're going to say no and he's going to get mad. I mean, I think that's a pretty safe bet even without all of you know the, the larger questions of what his policy priorities are. Mm-hmm. Well, I hate to use this phrase, but it seems like it's too early to call. And it's too early to see exactly how this is all going to shake out. Uh, we are less than 24 hours from the election results. And I'm sure this is something that will come up on future episodes of Too Embarrassed to Ask as well. So, Russell, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast, uh, all the way from New York. And Ina, thank you for being here. It's great to see you, IRL. It's great to see you. All the cool kids are using it. This has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. And in honor of the election, we're actually going to retire the word great. <laughs> we are simply going to say we hope you have found this to be an informative episode of yeah. Too Embarrassed to Ask. All now. right. But okay. if you enjoyed the episode as much as we did, because we did enjoy it, despite how tired we are, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. You don't want to make Too Embarrassed to Ask great again? Too Embarrassed to Ask already is great. That's right. That's exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Anyway, subscribing is also great. <laughs> You'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. That's iTunes.com slash too embarrassed to ask. You can also subscribe on Google Play Music, TuneIn or Stitcher, or just go to the website. You can listen to every episode at recode.net slash podcasts. And while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. The Verge also has some terrific podcasts for your listening pleasure. Walt Mossberg and Neelai Patel host Control Walt Elite. Neelai also usually hosts the Vergecast and Chris Plant hosts What's Tech. Don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed or email them to us at Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. Thank you for listening and thank you again to our sponsors, Audible and SoFi. Thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes the show. We will be back next week to answer more of the questions that you have been too embarrassed to ask, so tune in then. <laughs>